0: And welcome, Mehaba Thank you very much indeed for joining us again on our Talking Round North Cyprus podcast, a podcast where we chat about all things to do well, you've guessed it, with the Turkish Republic of North Cyprus. As always, I'm joined by my former BBC Radio Jersey colleague, Roger Barra, and my good friend, of course, as well. Roger, we've certainly over here, we've had a busy time. We've got Eurovision, which is this weekend, which uh, everybody is gearing up for because, of course, it's in Liverpool And all the people Have come out The woodwork And finally said That oh I quite Enjoy Eurovision We've just had The coronation That was last weekend You of course I know you're in Cyprus But you've had liberation So it's been full on So how have you Been celebrating And what have you Been celebrating
1: Well obviously The coronation Hello everybody By the way The, the coronation Was heavily watched By the expat crowd Well most of us We, we had it on Camilla's never been My favourite cover tea So I've watched Charles B being crowned because i thought this is probably not going to happen again in my lifetime i was uh, 6 months old the last time it happened i think and uh, when it came to her being throned uh, me and mrs b said our oh, that's it, you know, and uh, we went, went out into the sun. But there were quite a few parties, expat parties that we came across. I went to uh, a pub to watch football on the Saturday evening and there were loads of people dressed there in, in uh, you know, their Union Jack suits and, and uh, yeah, and the atmosphere it was terrific. Yeah. But um, we've met in the last two or three years uh, many couples who, like us, lived, or came from, the little island of Jersey. And it's quite extraordinary. We had a big, big party last week, and this is to celebrate what is the most important day in the Channel Island calendar. And as you will know, Sarah, that's uh, May the 9th, Liberation Day in 1945. The British troops came to the island and, if you like, rid the island of its German occupiers. Every year there's a reenactment. And it's the same every year. And they go to the Pomdor Hotel, these British troops, and they go and stand on the balcony where used to be Nazi flags during the wartime. And I think what a lot of people don't know, Sarah, is just how badly the Channel Islands suffered mm. during the war. You're talking about people starving to death. Yeah. And uh, I know this is not what this podcast is about, but if, if anyone wants to look up the liberation of Jersey, I think you will if you don't know about it you'll be quite stunned at what life was really like during the only part of course of britain that was occupied uh, the british isles that was occupied uh, during the war but we had 16 people at a party all with jersey connections great big jersey flag by the swimming pool we proposed a few thousand toasts to all <laughs> and sundry and it was it was an absolutely very very uh, special afternoon and so wonderful Sarah to be able to you know I used to celebrate this for 35 consecutive years when i lived in jersey it was so wonderful to be able to do this amongst jersey folk mm-hmm. 3000 miles away from the island so i feel really privileged
0: That was lovely. Yes, I saw some of the photos. That was really nice. And you're right, it's a very special day. And We've both uh, been down there commentating on the event. And it's always really moving. I always feel very privileged to be part of it because they bring people that, you know, obviously there are fewer and fewer of them as time goes on. Islanders that were involved in the occupation, that were there, remember the Germans uh, for whatever reason, you know, and um, to be able to chat to them. And as you say, the soldiers come through, And they bring oranges um, because they would have come off the Red Cross ships as well. They were getting Red Cross parcels and people, youngsters being given oranges, not knowing what they were and sweets and things like that. It's a really, really moving time, as you say, and uh, lovely that you were able to uh, to celebrate it with with other people, because Mm. I think it's only if you've ever been there during Liberation Day that you understand what it's like and what what that sentiment means to people. And
1: you're so right, Sarah, when you say there are fewer and fewer people now sadly still alive to tell the tale. In fact, I'm not sure there is anybody still alive. i'm not I'm not sure. and and of course, Cyprus also is going to suffer the same fate. Okay, it might have been uh, thirty years later, but there are fewer and fewer people that were here during the troubles. And, you know, it's really important that the stories never, ever get lost in history. They need to be told.
0: Yeah. And I know the um, certainly from Jersey point of view, there are still a couple of people. In fact, when I was over in Jersey, there's a lady called Barbara Frost and um, she is 92 now. And she was about six during the occupation. And she uh, remembers being climbing into Springfield Stadium and stealing stalls from the germans and that sort of thing and getting eggs from the neighbors to um you know to, to try and um, look after her mum and all that sort of thing but they they do try and keep those memories and i know they've recorded jersey uh, heritage and jersey archive have recorded stories from people you know so that they they do keep those stories about what what life was like there so i'm glad that went very well yeah coronation certainly as i say i watched uh watched it all. I was um, doing the news on Saturday morning on BBC Northampton. It's one of those mornings where you say, today, the king will be crowned. And, you know, I probably won't get to do that again. Um, And I certainly haven't done it before. So that was one of those moments that was quite historic as well. So hopefully in years to come, when my grandchildren go, grandma where were you when the king was crowned i can say do you know what i announced it on the radio <laughs> <laughs> so that's my claim to coronation fame so yeah so uh lots and lots going on talking about things coming up um sunday you're off running again are you tell me about your famagusta run
1: yeah they're doing a six kilometer run this time Ooh. it was a 5k uh, a month ago in iskele famagusta uh, has now got a, a half marathon. And they're closing all the streets on Sunday, and uh, it should be another fantastic atmosphere. They've just brought all the times forward. So uh, I think the um, 21K race, which is a half marathon effectively, that, that's that been brought forward to half six in the morning, and yeah. I think it's because the temperatures are, are due to uh, actually skyrocket a bit on Sunday. At the moment, we're in mid-20s, and it's exceedingly pleasant. But I think from next week, we can say summer is a coming. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, you get a medal if you finish. If I'm lucky and there's nobody else running in my age group, I might win I might the over-60s award. There isn't an over-70s, sadly. <laughs> um, so there could be people running in my age group who are 10 years younger, which is very fair, I think. In the group. Anyway, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. Right, well, let's get on to our special guest today. Now, Roger, um, if people were listening um, to our previous podcast, which was, forget what we called it now, the cocking about one, I think it was, you had a little problem with your microphone, but you've got it sorted.
1: That's right. And to date, we've had no complaints about talking about male genitalia, (laughs) right? That's got some people interested now. Uh, so you can go back and where you're listening to this, you'll be able to listen to, to the uh, previous one we did. Yeah. So good old Izzy Hassan. He's probably a name that everybody now is totally familiar with. I know that uh, one of his Facebook sites has got 14,500 members. Ooh. Popular man. Uh, we spoke to him three years ago during lockdown, or just after the first lockdown, but we were still within the giant grasp of the pandemic and uh, we met at the coffee shop in Garne and he goes there to the coffee shop every so often and other places just to be there if people need a hand with anything and I started off by asking him three years on how does he look back at that time that was just so extraordinary
2: for all of us? I actually look back on it with some very good memories, uh, a lot of bad memories, Um, it was a very hard time for everybody. The pandemic really affected a lot of things on the island, Um, in particular the way we were raising money for charities. It it was kind of like surreal uh, in a way, but we came out the other end of it. We came out of it quite successfully in comparison to some other countries and the way that it was dealt with here and by the Ministry of Health and the government. And it doesn't actually seem like it was three years. It, it, the time really passed quite quickly when we look back uh, and now we look back at it and think, well, three years isn't a long time, but it seems like an, an eternity. At the time, we felt that it would never end, um, but it did.
1: And here we are, sat in a cafe, yes. you and me, inches yeah. apart. No, no masks. No mask, nobody <laughs> wearing a mask.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic, but it turned out very well, I think.
1: What motivated you to do the incredible job you did in translating page after page after page of the official diktats coming out of government, what you could do, what you couldn't do. I mean, it changed your life. What motivated you to do it? You're supposed to be retired and on the beach. Well, you couldn't go on the beach in those days, but you know what I
2: mean. Yeah, it did change my life quite a lot and um, on a a daily basis. What I realized was, I was involved in um, a media, a media organization, um, and we used to try to put out some of the news what i realized was that in some of the facebook groups people were getting very confused about what was actually going on and what was true and what wasn't true and what they needed to do and people were taking articles from turkish media and doing like a google translate on it of course it wasn't making any sense at all um so i started to try and put all that right and i found myself having to translate everything sentence by sentence paragraph by paragraph to make sense of it for other people to understand you
1: also had to be fluent absolutely fluent in both languages to understand all the nuances
2: yes most definitely because you can put things into a Google translation and um, it will give you the wrong meaning as we know and I always say to people examples of that is anything you translate is your part of the world is Skellet. Iskela means a pier. Yes. It can mean a scaffold. You know. So when a Google app or any other app translates it, it doesn't keep the name Skelet. It says in scaffold, or in port, or in port, yeah, or on the pier. Yeah. And so those are the kind of things we need to really sort out. Uh, and I set about doing it. And yes, and it's brought me to what I do today uh, in trying to help everybody with understanding the the rules. The rules during COVID were changing sometimes twice a week. Uh, They were changing late at night. uh, And I was sitting there translating so that everybody knew what they were required to do, especially with things like um, not going out, where you could go we needed to wear a mask, we needed to show a pass, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. We actually helped people. I had a little bit of help sometimes. I mean, people understood. And if they did have any questions about it, um, they could get in touch. And it was very simple to uh, to sort it out from that point. The trouble is, once you
1: started morally, knowing you, you couldn't stop even if you wanted to. So were there times when you, Got really fed up doing a translation at 11 o'clock at night, and then expecting a load of you know social media messages following your announcement. I mean, it must have
2: been tough. There, there were plenty of uh, occasions when I did feel like that and thought, sort of like, oh. You know, what have I got myself into? Should I actually uh, just stop doing it? But I found that the amount of people that were getting in touch with me with their questions and queries, especially when something has been uh, announced, because it, although we we are translated in order to stop the confusion, people were still interpreting what it was, what I was translating, and then wanted to seek that clarification. Am I doing this right? Yeah, can I do this? Should I be doing this? That kind of thing. Uh, yeah, so that did keep me motivated. And even, even now, you know, on a daily basis, I might get anything between 12 to 20 messages, private messages of people asking me various questions. And it's not just based on immigration um, or residency. It could be absolutely anything. That's what
1: I wanted to talk about now. We're sat. In the, in the coffee shop, uh, in Gurney, and uh, what are you actually doing here? And, and of course in <laughs> other places, like the bank in Ch- and, and other places.
2: Um, well, what, what I actually try to do is meet some of the people that know I exist, they know about me, uh, people may refer them to me, some people do not want to ask their questions on an open group in Facebook, Uh, It might be something that's very, very private. You know, some people come to me with questions about wills, about land, about property, uh, things like that. I don't give legal advice. I'm just giving people guidance to help them along the way and show them the path they should be taking. Some of the things I can answer directly because I know what the rules are. But as I say, people do not always want to do it by message. By Facebook, um, they want to come and sit down and ask directly and get a direct answer to the question. And as you saw, I'm not sure if you did see this morning, uh, just shortly before you arrived, there was a couple here that saw my message on Facebook. I'm at the coffee shop, and they came to ask me three separate questions. And I've hopefully I've helped them, and they've gone away quite happy, and they pay for my coffee. Uh, so that's everything. Everything is nice. I do not charge for helping people, I don't, do not have a fee. If anybody is happy with what I do, and um, they're welcome to give a donation to the Heartbeat North Cypress Cancer Charity Trust. If they don't have to, if they don't want to, I'm quite happy to help people voluntarily and not place a charge Is that,
1: is that why you, because you don't take any money you're driving around in a small mini instead of a big flash black Mercedes?
2: <laughs> That's absolutely correct um, a few years ago another consultant said to me that next year you're going to have your own consultancy agency and I said sorry I'm not interested in uh, earning money out of this it didn't sit well with people um, because I'm doing something for free <clears throat> excuse me but some people are charging for but I'm not giving legal advice it's just help Mm. so yes if I had gone down that route I might have been driving in a nice shiny new Mercedes um, but that's really not why I do it. When we spoke last time we
1: were in the middle of this pandemic and we didn't really talk much about the incredible work that you and many others do for charity over here and I was astonished to to learn that a Heartbeat has now been going, what, 35 years this year?
2: Yes, it's the 35th year of Heartbeat. The North Cypress Cancer Charity Trust came out of St Andrew's Church in Girna, uh, originally there. Reverend Arthur Ryder, if I remember his name correctly, uh, and a few others there, started doing charitable work to help the local people. But because they were foreigners, we could not set up a charity. So some of the local uh, lawyers got together and they formed the charity. They carried on yeah, from the church. And it developed into what it is today. We were full committee, we were volunteers. The government gave us a shop to use, which was it's just down by the side of the Gieden Estate Hospital, part of the old hospital, which is now... Uh, it's the social services building there so we don't have any uh, rent or anything to pay or electricity we have, we have another premises called the hut which is behind the post office that's also given to us by the government we pay a little bit of electricity there um, as part of a few other buildings there one being the uh, library as well it's kind of um, developed in a way now since uh, I've come into being a chairman. I'm in my third year where I've actually managed to raise the profile of the charity so that people do know about us. And because it was, it was quite small, scaled down, not many people actually realised that this charity existed. So when you mentioned uh, cancer charities, people's mind automatically goes to uh, tulips, for example. But we work in a different way too. The other charities, what we do is we buy equipment for the state hospitals, where they request equipment. Well, sometimes when we've got enough funds, we will go and say to them, "What would you like?" And it doesn't restrict us to the cancer wards. although we focus on the cancer wards. we, in our constitution, we can purchase any type of equipment for any of the state hospitals. Do you wait
1: till you've got the money, then find out what's needed and go and buy it? or do you go and buy it, keep your fingers crossed and hope you raise enough money? How does it work?
2: Most of the time, yeah, we, we get a request. and First of all, obviously, we look at the budget and then we try to work out what our income might be and from there, we will place an order. Um, normally, When we place an order for it to arrive can take a couple of months because it has to be imported and there's all the other stuff that you know customs and all the rest of it and some of the equipment sitting in Turkey for quite a while before it comes here and that time we do keep our fingers crossed that we can raise enough money to be able to to pay for it the only problem at the moment is that we can try to estimate it because our income is in turkish lira but because the exchange rates keep going up all the time uh, and we end up paying even dollars or euros, um, it's a little bit of an up- struggle, upstream struggle, as you as you can imagine. And it's hard to predict the change in those rates and where we'll be able to afford it. But thankfully, we have a good support system. We have very hard working volunteers. And at the end of the day, they make sure that we have enough funds to pay for what we Order and currently we just ordered an endoscope for Ginner Hospital that was requested of us. Originally that was going to go to the uh, Lapta Clinic. Uh, Lapta Clinic said thank you very much. We sorted that out, but the hospital said yes, we'd like that here. Mm. Um, so we placed the order. I placed the order about three weeks ago. It hasn't arrived yet. Meanwhile, we are collecting money, making our sales, having a few events here and there, and. We will have the money to pay for it, probably at the end of next month.
1: How difficult is it raising money in this day and age? I mean, you had the pandemic, which I know you'll probably tell me you weren't affected maybe quite so much because you had property you didn't have to pay rent on. But take the earthquake, the awful, awful earthquake just a few months ago. That must have diverted loads of funds because we're human and that's what happens, isn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. The pandemic slowed things down. Um, but it didn't bring everything to a full stop. There were a few months where we weren't allowed to do anything. You weren't allowed to open the shops. When it slowly opened up, uh, working under the rules. Because don't forget, our shop is situated in a uh, more local area, it's in cent- central Gibner. Um uh, The people that come to use the shop and buy what we're selling, which is all recycled, donations, clothing, household goods, and everything like that. And these people cannot afford to go into uh, mainstream shops and spend a lot of money. So they come to us and we do not charge them the going high street rate for anything. So it's quite affordable. And those people come in knowing that they're gonna purchase something. And at the end of the day, we are gonna buy something which they may need if they're in hospital. That's the first thing. We got through the pandemic uh, and then as you think that things are gonna go nice and uh, normal and gonna go well, then something else happened. And the earthquake into Turkey and Syria uh, had another effect on us, but it was very short term. And yes, it was all, all the attention was diverted to that. Even for us, when there was an appeal for clothing, and things that people could use uh, back in Turkey, because they lost everything they had. We started giving them, we were giving them our stock as well. So it wasn't financial, but we were trying to give them what they actually needed. But we've come out of that as well, although that's still ongoing. And now we're slightly coming back on track. And what we're actually doing now is planning some events. Um, we've got one coming up in June. Um, that will be at the MC Palace. Is
1: that Uh, to
2: celebrate the 35 years? No, that's going to be what we call a coffee morning. uh, And there will be arts and crafts sale there. Tuesday 13th of June, I think is the right date, between uh, something like 10 and 2.30 in the afternoon. Sorry, I've got to plug it, um, because we do want everyone to come. We haven't done one for quite a while, and they're, they're very good events to attend. You know, there's refreshments available. Uh, and everything like that. So we are slowly getting back on track. Uh, the shops are doing well and we will soon start doing smaller events in places like the Black Olive and other venues. We have um, regular events going on, say at the Grease Monkey over in uh, Chatelco, there's a quiz every Thursday night and bless them all, they, whatever they collect they give to us at the end of the year. And it's marvellous. It's always a little bit of a boost for us.
1: But all this takes volunteers. And if you tell me you've got enough, I won't believe you. <laughs> I mean, is it a problem? And if people listening to this think, do you know what, I've got, I can give a bit of time. Tell them how, how to go about it.
2: We always do need volunteers. Volunteering is only maybe a few hours three or four hours a week in general. So it's not a lot of somebody's time. It doesn't interfere with anybody's social life. In fact, it improves people's social life because you get to meet other people, new people. You get to meet people at the events. You know, and you make more friends uh, out of it. For anyone that wishes to volunteer, they just need to get in touch with anyone at the charity. I mean, I'm always available. People know how to get hold of me. We have a, a, a core people of volunteers which make up our uh, committee. Um, so people will know people uh, like uh, Linda Cook, Vicky Carragher, we have Paula. Uh, we have Carmel, we have Joan, we have Gina. Those names will be very familiar to all your listeners who follow me. Plus, we have some very hard working volunteers in the shops and people like Diane, for example, who's also involved in the Grease Monkey. They volunteer three, four, up to six hours a week. They do little short shifts in the shop. And when we have an event, big event like we're planning at the MC Palace, then we need more volunteers because we need people to help others. We need people to be, to be selling what we have to sell at our tables. Yes, volunteers are important. Get in touch with us if you wish to volunteer. It is a, it is a very nice and friendly atmosphere that we have.
1: And, and I think one of the great things is because of your uh, brilliant use of social media, every penny that's raised people can see exactly where it's going when you make the presentations to the hospital that was a deliberate ploy was it let people know where this money is going
2: that's uh, absolutely correct um, it was one of the things um i decided to do is highlight where the money goes it's very important that people see what is happening yeah with their money. Now, I know the other charities do it in their own way, but we do not have any any outgoings. We have a few expenses, you know, things we might need for the shop. Sometimes we have to repair, though we're given the premises. If it needs any repairing, that becomes down to us. Um, But for example, last year, financial year, which we have to present figures to to Climacamp, proper accounting what income, expenses, and what we've purchased. We have to show that to them. When we present those figures, we also look at how much our expenses come to. And in the last financial year, our actual expenses were under 2% of our income. So, so that means that 98% of, of the money that we actually collect or have donated goes directly to buying the equipment, okay, for the hospitals.
1: You're in your third year at the head, if you like, of Heartbeat. Um, How much longer are you going to be
2: doing it? People are asking. Seeing as um, my deputy, Linda Cook, is sitting across the floor to me here, listening in, I'm not sure if they actually want me to stop. (laughs) Uh, I'm not certain. I don't have a choice is what I was just told. Okay. Um, I will keep going as long as it's necessary. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, it's a good team. Mm-hmm. There's no friction. There's no, you know, sometimes you hear in some places is backbiting, unsatisfied people. Uh, that kind. None of that exists in our charity. They're all very friendly. I just turn up once a month for a meeting. The rest of the time I'm working uh, literally away from them doing what I do I don't interfere in anything they want to do yes I'm there for consult if they want to consult with me if we need to make decisions together uh, that's when we 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 get together now, other than that ladies know what they're doing they know it much better than I do okay i've not had their kind of experience and some of these ladies have been doing this for uh, coming up to 10 to 12 years wow and there's nothing that i can actually show them what to do all i can do is lead promote use my um, people know me so i can use that mm-hmm. to keep the charity in people's minds all the time now finally
1: i've been asked by some of our listeners, who have noticed from time to time, some of your retorts on social media can, how can I put this, be a bit brusque. So they want to know what really miss you when you you spend hour after hour, day after day, doing what you do. What what actually gets your goat sometimes?
2: Only things that get personal, uh, really. Or if if I if. I'm stating facts according to whatever the law or the rule is, and people come in and say, But I heard this and I heard that. Bar stool lawyers, is that the term? Yeah, um, will sit there and people will give their uh, opinions, but they're only opinions. And when they enter them into the group as though they're facts, it creates me a problem because then I have to. Uh, correct it. In the groups, in the group itself, in the Heartbeat, North Cyprus Heartbeat group, yes, a lot of people will ask repetitive questions and sometimes this abruptness comes across because I put a link into, look, we discussed this yesterday, yeah. there's the link, just take a read of that. We can't have the whole conversation again today. It's not being abrupt, it's actually trying to get people to look into the group or searching to the group. And trying to help themselves before they ask for help. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. quite honestly. And some people will Google things, but Google won't give them the right answer. I suppose I'm easier than Google, and that's why I get a lot Mm. lot of questions. I don't mind. I might mind if somebody wants an immediate answer, um, otherwise then I will take everything in turn if I find something has been asked that's very urgent I got asked a question last week for example somebody's got a, a friend or a neighbour and they've got an elderly relative and they're in hospital and things are not looking good um, what do we do if this person passes away uh, that kind of thing so I'll guide them to the, to the person that deals with that Okay. and they say thank you very much you've been a great help you know. and that's all I want to do that's all I need to do answering repetitive questions is part of the game because not everybody sees everything that goes into the group or all the answers um, and of course some aren't particularly proficient at using social media no not everybody is We find that I find that sometimes uh, I meet people who know of me who are not in the group who are not on Facebook but their friends will pass on the information and they'll show it to them and they say oh look this is what Izzy wrote this this could apply to you um, and when I do meet them out in the public it's nice because people come up to me and they say thank you thank you for what you do and they appreciate what I do and that to me is very important I can't get around the supermarket you know without people coming up and speaking to me I see people wondering if it's me or not, and then they eventually come to approach me. I'm very approachable. You know. they don't bite. I, oh, I don't bite. No, definitely not. No, no. Izzy Ata Hassan, good old Izzy.
1: Yeah, he doesn't <laughs> bite. I can, I can actually vouch for that because he agreed to do yet another interview because the first one didn't come out properly. So, uh, okay. our grateful thanks to him. What an extraordinary job if they want to contact him, one of the Facebook groups is called North Cyprus Heartbeat, and you can contact Izzy through that, and there's all sorts of information. And, of course, nowadays, as you heard Izzy say, it's not all about, well, it's hardly anything now about Mm -hmm. COVID-19, but things like residency and all the issues that affect people right now, you can talk to him about that. And the charity work he does, uh, the Facebook, book site is called Heartbeat North Cyprus Cancer Charity Trust. And if you look at that, you can find out the incredible work that's gone on over the years. And what, do, do you know, Sarah, I sometimes worry about what would happen if all these wonderful people, yeah. volunteers, yeah. Uh, if they didn't do what they do. We're talking about possibly losing lives and things. So you you cannot do something surely much more rewarding than that. And you heard Izzy say, just contact him if you want to give a hand and uh, uh, we'll catch up with him in another three years.
0: <laughs> See how he's doing. I have to say, hats yeah. off to um, to people that do volunteer, wherever they may be, but certainly in Cyprus, um, because so many things need doing, don't they? I mean, we've heard from Tulips, you know, the amount of work that they do to um, raise funds and supply uh, you know, the cancer charities and that sort of thing. And, you know, obviously we've heard from dog shelters as well. And it's all down to volunteers, people mm-hmm. sort of taking on these things. And and obviously, if you have got, you know, five minutes or five hours or five days, then there are always people out there that could, you know, could do with a hand. And, and you know, and you, you get to meet people and you get involved, don't you, in the local community as well. OK, well, um, thank you again for listening to uh, Talking Round North Cyprus, our podcast. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Talking Round North Cyprus. You can always drop us an email as well. Uh, that is trnc.podcast at gmail.com. I'm Sarah Palmer.
1: And I'm Roger Barr. I hope to talk to you again very, very soon.